This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. Um, Every time Damien has mentioned we're shaving 10 minutes off the service, that is a subtweet directed right at me. So we're going to do this quick and to the point this morning as we look at these few verses from 1 Peter. I don't know how many weeks we are into this series, um, but we come to a point in a text, a small passage in the epistle that is in lots of ways a summary of the whole. And so it's summertime and you, like me, have probably been in and out at different points. And if you've got some sense of certain topics we've talked about, but, but not necessarily a sense of the whole and how they fit together, this passage is like coming back up for air after swimming for a while and seeing sort of the expanse and, and the forest, uh, which you might easily miss amidst the trees. And uh, so with that in mind, let's spend some time in God's word. Um, it was a Friday morning in January of 2007 when a young man dressed in jeans and a long t-shirt uh, strolled into one of the largest terminals uh, or train stations in Washington, D.C. And like many others, he hustled in, took off his coat. It was a cold, snowy day. And he set up by an escalator and pulled out his violin case. He set up by one of the busiest junctions in the terminal and he began to play for about 45 minutes. During that time, as people were moving about, going to work, as they were off looking at their phones, checking out newspapers or what news was on the TV screens, they passed by. Well over a thousand people walked by this young guy as he played his violin. And no one stopped save for one small child. He'd put out his violin case and he'd thrown a few bucks in sort of to seed the project and get things started. And in 45 minutes, he made $32.17. Now, those thousand people didn't know that he was a plant placed there by the Washington Post. Those thousand people didn't know that he was playing a $3.5 million Stradivarius violin. Those thousand people didn't know that just two nights before he had played in the Boston Symphony Hall and people had paid hundreds of dollars to hear him play because those thousand people didn't know that this was Joshua Bell, one of the two or three most renowned violinists in the world and that they were hearing not some random guy amidst the hustle and bustle of the daily grind, but someone who had brought violin 
to perfection and had brought beauty into the mundane. I think, oftentimes, we're like those people. Damien mentioned as the service began, the events of the last week and the last month and of the year, as it were, death, division, hatred, fear, apathy. We see these things, we feel these things, we experience these things, and oftentimes we miss the beauty and the perfect. We miss the presence of what's truly real in the midst of the chaos of the mundane and in the midst of the busyness and overwhelmingness of the ordinary. And that's not new. Peter writes here to a people who experience that and who struggle with that. And so if you, like me, sometimes need to come back up for air, as it were, to get perspective, not to get away from reality, but to better look reality in the face, not to get away from what is sad, what deserves our lament, but to be enabled to lament well, not just to be sad, not just to be overwhelmed, not just to be fearful, but to put things in perspective and to be able to sorrow over them as they deserve, then this is a passage for you. And there's three things we see here. The first verse, verse seven, tells us the end of all things is at hand. The end, it's a word about time, right? About the conclusion, the fulfillment of something. Not so much the termination or removal of something, but about the fitting end to a long worked over process or project. This chapter is a chapter that is full of references to time. Last week, if you were here, you heard reference to a couple verses. Verse two, we're told that we're to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So this time is for living unto God in our flesh. And in verse three, we're told that the time that's past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in debaucherous, excessive sort of ways. And as we'll get to, in a week or two, verse 17 comes and tells us that it's time for judgment, and judgment that begins here, inside the church, not out there, amidst her enemies. It's a chapter laden with statements about time, because understanding that time is really important. Understanding when we are, where we fit in the story, is incredibly significant. And here, we're reminded the end of all things is at hand. It's just there, barely beyond reach. It's almost present in its fullness. There's an immediacy. There's a closeness that's being conveyed there in this statement that the end or the fitting conclusion of all things is just around the corner. Now that hasn't been announced on any cable news show this week. And I doubt you've seen people tweet that out. And I don't think your first reaction to yet another bit of news, either out in society at large or in your own struggles in your daily life, is the fitting conclusion of all things is just around the corner. We're almost there, as it were. The kingdom of God, as we sang, is here and it's about to be brought to its perfect end. We need to be reminded of that just like those people who could walk by 
listening to glories played on a violin and think nothing of it. We need to be reminded of the larger perspective, that the end of all things is at hand. But Peter doesn't simply want to tell us that things are about to end. He wants us to know that to direct how we live here and now. That's what we've seen time and again in his letter here, that he says something about the future for the sake of life in the present. He says something about what's coming and what has already come so that you can walk in a slightly different step, so that you can stand in a slightly different posture in the here and the now. Some of you perhaps know the story of Paul Kalanithi. He was a Christian and an acclaimed neurosurgeon. And at the age of 36, he was diagnosed with very advanced lung cancer. And he has written in his best-selling book now, his memoir, released after his death, entitled When Breath Becomes Air, of how he struggled, not with the diagnosis, but rather with the confusing reality that he couldn't know what the future held. He, he says this about his experience. He says, grand illnesses are supposed to be life clarifying. Instead, I knew I was gonna die, but I'd known that before. My state of knowledge was the same, but my ability to make lunch plans had been shot. The way forward would seem obvious if only I knew how much time I had left. Tell me three months, I'd spend time with my family. Tell me one year, I'd go write a book. Tell me I had 10 years and I'd get back to treating diseases in the hospital. Not knowing what's coming shapes an uncertainty and that uncertainty breeds an anxiety and that anxiety leads to, to stasis, to sitting, to being frozen in our seats as it were. And he describes that, not his disease, not the physical ailment, but confusion about what the future held as his greatest struggle. Peter tells us two things with regard to how we respond to this word, this reminder that the end of all things is at hand. The first is something he said before and he'll say again. It's one of the most common statements in the epistle. He says in verse one, or sorry, verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Sober-mindedness is one of Peter's favorite reminders and exhortations. He brought it up at the end of chapter one. He'll bring it up again at the end of chapter four. Don't act like you're drunk, right? Don't act like you're incapable of seeing what's going on, right? That's the great problem with drunkenness, right? With excess of that sort, it renders you incapable of seeing what's going on. Perhaps you feel drunk with news from life. Perhaps you feel drunk with challenges from your daily grind. Perhaps you feel drunk with the way in which relationships seem to constantly be this movement where you, you, you search for a little bit of stability. Be sober-minded, Peter says. Gain a broader perspective. Be able to see things for what they are. Not just to be knowledgeable, but secondly, that you might be self-controlled. You've got to be able to see what's going on so that you can control yourself, right? So that you can act in a way that's measured, that fits the situation, right? Not seeing things for what they are leads to great pain and struggle. 
We've seen this, of course, in a couple of the films that have reflected on events a few years ago with the financial collapse. Some of you will have seen Oliver Stone's movie, Wall Street 2, where the infamous figure Gordon Gekko uh, offers the quip that the mother of all evil is speculation. When you don't know what's coming and you speculate, you guess, and you put your eggs in a basket based on something that you have no reason, no ground for knowing, that's, that's hopeful or wishful, it leads to great evils. It leads to great calamities. It leads to hurt. Some of you will have seen the movie a year ago or so, The Big Short, not reflecting on ignorance, but rather on what we think we know that just isn't so. And you'll remember the epigraph of that movie. It's not what a man doesn't know that leads to his harm, but what he thinks he knows that just isn't so. Both of those quips and their different perspectives on the the financial crisis are pointing to a deeper truth, right? The idea that our missteps, the way in which we harm each other, the way in which we harm ourselves, is one way or another flowing forth from misperceptions about what's coming and about what it'll be like. The end of all things is at hand. Be sober-minded and see it. Be self-controlled and live in step with it. Be prepared and walk unto that end. We see here that self-control is birthed by what Peter began his letter with. The promise that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have been born anew to what he calls a living hope, right? A living hope that Jesus is here and that he's with us now as we sang earlier. That we can know his presence, we can know his power, and that his rule, his kingdom, and its fulfillment, its end, is just at hand, it's coming. And thus we are to live in step with it. Now, we've seen this illustrated in a bunch of ways. You'll remember if you've been here the last few weeks that in chapter two, verses nine and 10, we were told that we are a remarkable people by God's grace, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And those are remarkable gifts. That's a remarkable name to have put upon you. But we saw there that those are not things that are for your own exploitation or just for your own good. They bring with it a vocation and a calling, a mission. God doesn't just have some sort of release or forgiveness for you, but he's got a task for you. And we see there that we're to keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that through us and the way we adorn the gospel with our lives, they will be led to praise God, our heavenly father. We saw that in chapter two, verses 12 and 13. And then we saw in verse 15 and following that that means we show great patience, even in the face of of governmental authorities who would mistreat us for our faith and who would harm us for our Christian walk. And in verse 18 and following, we saw that we show great graciousness and care Great charity in the face of employers who can make your life painful precisely because they don't like your Christian convictions and your biblical integrity. And like Jesus, who though he was reviled, didn't revile, though he was beaten, didn't fight back, though he was threatened, didn't call down angels to deliver him from the cross, we're called to imitate him and to be subject graciously to those who don't deserve it, who are unjust. And we saw in the first six verses of chapter three, 
that many of us find ourselves in marriages or in family situations where we were pagans and one of us has been converted. And we might think, I'm an heir of the king. I've been brought out of darkness into light. Life should be peaches now. And we might flee that family. We might flee that marriage. We might leave that difficulty and frustration believing life should be good and easy. But Peter tells us, you're to love. You're to be patient. You're to bear with one who makes your walk hard. You're to do so as a witness that they might be saved, that they might see your graciousness and through you see the grace of your heavenly father revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. And here, Peter refers to all that when he tells us the end of all things is at hand. See it in a sober-minded way and be self-controlled as you live and walk to that end tomorrow. But he unpacks it, and that's the third thing we've got to see here. That this self-control, this patience, this willingness to suffer is ultimately something that moves us together and doesn't push us apart. We see this in the last few verses of our passage. As we look at chapter four, we see it really in three different ways. In verse eight, we're told, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In verse 9, we're told to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And in verses 10 and 11, we're told, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Three things showing that we move together and we don't move apart. It's worth noting that that's not intuitive. More often than not, when people are told the end is coming, they don't move toward others. They move away from others. This is why there are things like survivalist places out in the middle of nowhere, right? A survivalist cabin is never found in downtown, right? It's in a place out away from people, right? You don't have to be a big fan of post-apocalyptic literature or movies to be familiar with this idea that when people think the end is coming... They stock up, they wall up, and they get out. And that's a basic intuition. It's a protective mentality, right? If, if I'm on the highway and I see someone weaving and I wonder if they're not paying attention or they're not sober-minded, what do I do? If I'm thinking clearly, I sit back and I stay away. Or perhaps I speed up and get beyond them. Maybe not the most clear-minded moment, but I, I give them room as it were so that whatever they're doing that they shouldn't be doing isn't going to impact me and my vehicle, right? That's a basic survivalist tendency. And that affects us not just in terms of driving or financial planning, but in terms of our spiritual and relational lives. And notice how Peter cuts right at the heart of those instincts. First of all, he says, above all, love one another earnestly. Notice he doesn't say love at the margins. He doesn't say love with your excess. He doesn't say when you've got a day off and you find yourself with time on your hands, go give yourself away in love. Love earnestly and above all, love earnestly. This is priority number one, right? This is not something on a menu that you might choose from. 
This is rather a word that says, throw the whole menu out. Take this dish. Your life is to be a life of love for one another. Our ministry and service to each other is not something we do sometime in some ways when we've got some resources, but it's meant to be taking all of our time and all of ourselves and all that God has given to us as a means of loving one another. There's an earnestness and a priority that Peter's conveying here. And he fleshes that out. He says, secondly, show hospitality to each other without grumbling. Now, I had wonderful parents. I have wonderful parents. Mom, if you're listening, you're great. They taught me to be hospitable. Someone would come to our house uh, for a meal or even for days or weeks as happened at various points when storms would come by and knock power out and the like. We would house them. And my mom and dad taught me that you do that. That's a part of Christian conviction. God's hospitable to us, we're hospitable to others. But their great example can't in and of itself change the fact that my heart, like probably some of yours, grumbles while doing what I know I ought to do. I know I need to provide something. I know I need to help them out. I don't like it. I may not find them enjoyable. This may not be what I had planned for my day or weekend for my money, for my home. Peter tells us, show one another hospitality without grumbling because we see our neighbor not as an encumbrance, but as a gift. We see our neighbor not as an other, but as a member of the family. And so hospitality isn't something that's meant to cut against your delight, but is meant to express your joy. That being graced by God, we start to overflow with graciousness. And he, he explains how that happens third in the most pointed way. And this is rather remarkable. He says in verses 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then he gives examples. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. As each one has received a gift, as each one, each and every one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Notice what he calls us, stewards, not the most exalted title, but not one so low that our savior wasn't happy to embrace it on that night just before his death where he got down and like a steward, he washed feet, reminding us of how to interpret what happened the next day. That as a Lord, he got on a cross and he washed our very souls. And yes, with him, we are heirs and we receive all life and blessing. And in chapter one, that's practically the first thing Peter tells us. He says, you've been born anew to an inheritance and it's not a paltry one at that. He describes it in these overflowing and excessive words that it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. You can't waste it and others can't harm it. You're an heir in Christ. But being an heir doesn't mean you're not also a steward. Because your election and your salvation is not just for you to enjoy on your own, 
but it's for you to enjoy as you share it with others. Election always comes with a vocation and a calling. God doesn't love you so little that he just provides for your needs without also providing a vision for your life. He knows you can't trust yourself to figure out what you're here for. And so he tells you, you're here and every gift that you have is so that you might steward it and give it to others. As I look out at the room, we have so many gifts. He lists a couple, speaking, serving. We might think of others as those who've been educated. Your education is not simply something that is meant to make you wise or successful or to open doors, but is something that's to be used that you might educate and inform others, that you might serve and help others. As many of you have access to resources through friendships, through neighbors, through connections, those are not simply for you to call up when you're in a jam, but so that when others are in a jam and they don't have connections, you can marshal your resources and your friendships. You can deploy them to the common good. Many of us find ourselves in sort of majority culture by race, by ethnicity, perhaps by religion or socioeconomic status. That is not your own gift to be enjoyed by yourself. That's your gift to be used for others. And so our money, our power, our access to political resources, all of these things are to be used as a steward, not simply as an heir. Just as Jesus didn't exploit the fact that he was God by nature, but he willingly emptied himself that he might serve and share that with others. Philippians 2 tells us. So we as heirs by grace aren't to exploit that, but are to share that with others. And of course, most of all, as those in this room who know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and who know our deep and profound need for his blessing, his life, his light, that is not something to be kept to ourselves. That is something to be shared. As we looked at chapter two and we looked at those names, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We're reminded those aren't just statements of gift. Those aren't simply statements of uh, a great benefit, but they're statements of our intermediary and intercessory calling. A priest is not just a person in a position of acclaim. A priest is always a middleman. They connect people. You look at the Old Testament. Priests aren't just cool people who get to go hang with God. They're people who make it possible that all of Israel can be with God. They mediate. They receive a blessing. It's good to be with God. It's necessary to be with God. It provides every joy and pleasure to be with God but it's not only theirs to be with God. They make it possible for all of Israel to enjoy the presence of God in their midst. And Israel is a holy nation and a royal priesthood we read in Exodus 19, six and seven. And it's good to be God's people. It's good to have God dwell in your midst, to lead you through the desert, to fight off your enemies, to protect you, to make forgiveness possible for your sins but it's not simply for Israel to enjoy on our own. 
when she was called in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, when Abraham was promised life and descendants and land and blessing and all the rest, he was told that the nations will be blessed through him. And Israel was called to be a light to the nations and a priest, all of them. And that's your calling and mine. We are heirs, Peter has named us in Jesus, but we're also stewards. And everything you have, every strength that strengthens your activity this day is from God, verse 11 says. And it's for you to act. It's for you to pray. It's for you to speak. It's for you to serve. Not simply for your own benefit, but as good stewards for the benefit and betterment of others. That we might grow into conformity to the image of Jesus who showed us to the bitter end what that looks like. As we think about that and as we conclude, we do well to see where Peter concludes here. The end of all things is at hand, but not all things end. Notice, he goes on in verse 11 and says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. There is a conclusion, there is a fitting end, there is a planned projected work that he is bringing about, there is maturity and growth and development, but there's one who didn't need to be taught and doesn't have to grow and isn't in need of development because he has glory and dominion already and he will forever. And because he's raised from the dead, you have living hope. And because you have living hope, you can give yourself away. And because you can give yourself away, others can see the source of that power, the source of that self-sacrifice, And because they can see the source of that, they can see the beauty and the power of it. As we go out from this place, as we pray, as we interact at work, in our homes and neighborhoods, as we watch the news, as we consider our own sin and our struggles, don't lose sight of that perspective that the end of all things is at hand and that there's great power power to lament, and power to give yourself away. Power to sorrow in a more deep way than the world knows how to sorrow. And power to sacrifice in a more profound way than the world knows how to sacrifice. Because we have the gift of grace. And through Christ, we have the graciousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are yours. We confess so often we think, that we are our own, we are the world's, we are tossed and turned, we are out of control, we are overwhelmed. Remind us, we pray, the end of all things, the end of each of us, the end of our city, the end of our sin and struggle is at hand. For Jesus Christ is here now. Grant us that deep living hope in our hearts. Root it, we pray, that we might not forget it, that we might not undervalue it, that fear may not settle in, but that we might truly lament over our failures and those of our people. And that in that lament, we might love. We might see ourselves and all of our days and all of our gifts as a calling and appointment by you that we might better and bless others with your grace and your gift given to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
his strong name we pray.